Better listen very carefully. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Essentially, at this point, the fight is over. So you pretty much flow with the goal. Who is worthy to be trusted with the secret to limitless power? I'm ready. Welcome to the Bulletproof of BJJ podcast. I'm Joey. JT's not here today because he's traveling overseas. And I'm joined by Jeremy Paul Skinner. How you doing, man? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Good start to the day. Just uh, smash some espresso and then head my way over here. Have you grappled already this morning? No, I haven't. So I'll be uh, teaching a private lesson after this and then teaching class. Okay, cool. What does your schedule look like? Full-time coaching, training, can you break it down for me? Yep. Day-to-day, um, it changes a bit. So I actually started working at a coffee roastery Tuesdays and Thursdays, starting a couple of months ago. So so before I was like just full-time jiu-jitsu, but now I do a little bit of that too. It just happened to be that the days that I would head out to train in Penrith, so like, you know, that's heading, for, for those that don't know, that's an hour and a half away from here. Like it's it's a bit of a journey. That was the days that um, I'd take pretty light anyway. Like I wouldn't train during the day on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I would just go train in the evenings at Luke's classes. So it just happened to work out that there was this coffee roastery that a friend of mine mentioned. She's just said like, oh, you know, like uh, you're interested in coffee. Do you want to like just do some work in the coffee industry? And it happened to work out pretty well that they were happy with me just working just during the day, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I'm officially no longer um, a full-time grappler and I am now... Well, I guess I'm full-time grappling plus part-time working at a coffee roastery. I would say the combination of those two crafts makes you the ultimate BJJ hipster. Yeah, I, I, there seems like there's, a, there's an interesting crossover between like coffee culture and, and jiu-jitsu. Like, there is, huh? There, there's that many different jiu-jitsu-themed coffee brands out there too. Is there? Yeah, there's, there's tons. I've, I've seen heaps over the years. I don't know how good any of it actually is. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I've never been big on like these sort of like themed coffees because like um i won't name like different brands because just that's probably not the polite thing to do but like you you see this with like like uh, I'll, I'll just drop one like like i think like black rifle coffee for example rogan like, talks about them doesn't yeah he? exactly like yeah. to my understanding like they're selling their product more because of like a theme that they're trying to deliver on versus actually producing like like high quality coffee like generally you know high quality coffee is going to come from people that are really focused on the actual coffee versus trying to appeal to a specific market, which is fine. Like it just, cause then they do other things. I, I believe, for example, they do a lot of work with like supporting like, uh, you know, veterans uh, in the U S and things like this. So it's not that it's uh, for naught. Um, yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a great cause. Yeah. But if you're looking for exceptional coffee, perhaps. Yeah. I think like if you're into coffee, that, that's, that's a different thing entirely. And you, you're looking for, for something slightly different. I think as Australians, and I mean, definitely here on the East Coast, like Melbourne, Sydney. Very um, spoiled for choice. We are, right? And we take it real seriously. Absolutely. Not all of us, but a lot of us. I got a shout out. JT, he used to drink. I remember him telling me about the amount of coffee he'd drink. And I'm like, bro, how do you afford that? Because you have like, I don't know, a bunch. I'll ask him. But it was like more than five a day yep. at a period. And I'm like, how do you afford that? And he's like, I get it from 7-Eleven. I was like, bro. <laughs> the fuck who drinks their coffee from 7-eleven he's like it's a dollar yeah so 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 this is the argument i make like i'm pretty picky with my coffee but if i'm traveling and i just need coffee i i don't mind 7-eleven coffee because it's a dollar and i and i if i drink 7-eleven coffee i go did i get a dollar's worth out of this absolutely i did (laughs) like like compared to say for example you go to mcdonald's and like it's say five dollars for a coffee and it Tastes more or less the same as the Seven Eleven coffee. They charge. Oh, they charge like proper yeah. cafe prices. Yeah, exactly. For right. you know, coffee that tastes more or less. You know, it is same it's low know. level. Yeah, like and, and part of the reason for that is we we're talking about before with like uh, quality of coffee. When you're talking like mass production of coffee, there's probably a few things that go into that that sort of bring the quality down. Like it's what they call like ninety plus coffee, which is a certain rating in coffee. So McDonald's is not buying ninety plus coffee uh, to serve <laughs> to their customers. Who's the who's the roaster that you're working for at the moment? Uh, it's called Underground Coffee Roasters, so that's out in Penrith. Cool, yeah. right on. And what's your role there? Um, so I actually just make coffee. Um, so the co- like I I'm I just work as a barista. We've got a like there's a the coffee bar there. Um, because of how the business is set up, um, the core business is the actual roasting and selling to cafes. 
So the actual business is set up. It's it's a relatively low foot traffic area. Um, it's in an industrial area because you know they need a lot of space so they can actually set up like the roasters and things like this and, and actually have the space to do that side of the business, which means I spend a lot of time just standing around just making coffee for myself, which is not bad. Like like especially you know as I mentioned, I'm working there on my uh, not quite off days, but like you know sort of my uh, lower energy days. So it's actually good that I'm not getting swamped all day long with uh with customers so i'm guessing that is the idea that, that makes your day driving out to penrith a bit more productive you can work a bit make a bit of money yeah. not have to drive at certain times and you can train jits yeah actually it works out really well because um i basically end up driving against the traffic when i head out that way as well as just it allowed me to essentially just get paid to do a hobby like i, I in my, my own time, like I'm into coffee and uh, like making coffee at home. So it actually just gave me more of an opportunity to learn more about that. Like I actually get to learn about, say, the roasting side of things, Um, you know, buying green beans, things like this, getting to play around with and try different coffees. And like, yeah, so so essentially what I did with jiu-jitsu, which was just go full time in, into my hobby, doing the same thing with coffee too. So... To give a bit of context for, for the listeners, you are competing in the upcoming ADCC, which is next month. Correct. Next month? Yeah, we're at the end of August right now. Less than three weeks. Yeah. Less than three weeks. Okay. I think uh, it'd be 17, 18 days from now. Okay. And you're in the 66 kilogram division. Correct. Which I've fucking had a look at it. And I mean, it's unbelievably stacked. What, what are some of the names in there? I, I see Gary Tonin. Gary Tonin, AJ Agazam, uh, Kennedy, Marcel, uh, Ethan Crellenston, Keith Krikorian, Juan uh, Alvarenga, got. Uh, Diogo Hayes? Yeah, Diogo Hayes and uh, Fabricio Andre, uh, two fight sports competitors. Fuck yeah, they looked great at their last. That, that who's number one? Yeah, um, Sam McNally from Ireland, I believe. I think who else? Josh Cisnero. Yeah, Is yeah, it? Josh. Yeah, yeah, he's doing fantastic. Like he's he's recently had a bunch of matches against different guys in that division, and um, I think he's beaten all of them so far. Like he, he beat Kennedy, beat Diego Pato, who's also in the division. Fucking stacked. Star-studded lineup. Now, obviously, we want to go into that, but but tell me. Relevant to the coffee thing, because we haven't finished on that yet. When you're preparing for an event like that and you're training and you also teach jujitsu, is it almost a necessity to have something outside of that that can take up, just give you a bit of mental space that's not on the mats? Yeah, so this was something that I dealt with probably a few years ago when I was uh, living in Melbourne still is that I was too focused on just the jiu-jitsu. And I understand like some people listening might think like, oh, like you know, how could you be too focused? But I think I needed like just even in a small way, just something that gave me a small break from jiu-jitsu. Um, not that I wasn't like I needed to take full days off, but just something just during the day, like something something minor that just gave me a little bit of a mental break from jiu-jitsu because it would be, you know, I'd go to training, I'd be teaching class and then maybe I'd, you know, do some study, go back to training, go home, do some more study and then go to bed. And that was uh, my routine for, for quite a while. Yeah. So it, it's good to have just a small sort of incredibly low impact hobby to just give me a little bit of a mental break. And, and I feel just like uh, mentally a lot better for it, being able to make sure that I actually give me give myself those breaks during the day. It makes it just, yeah, just a little bit easier. Would you say for anyone who's who's prepping at the level of the game you're at that it's kind of essential to go through, like is that camp idea of like leading up to an event, is it really stressful on the mind and the body? And, and I'm guessing does it have to be that way? Um, well, so I don't think it has to be, um, but I guess we'll see come ADCC based on my performance. That said, though, this was um, for preparing, preparing for actual ADCC has been more of a camp than, say, preparing for trials was. Just because of various injuries and things that you know I had going on, I was probably only rolling twice a week for maybe two to three months leading up to ADCC trials. Wow. Yeah, so I was only like... I mean, I, I was still getting a lot of the mental work in and as well as a lot of drilling in like throughout the week leading up to ADCC trials, but I was only... What's the mental rolling. work look like? So that's going to be looking at studying day-to-day, like problem solving, basically doing everything that you would do leading up to the actual physical work. But then I basically just save the physical work for that twice a week. So, you know, looking and analyzing different things that happen during your roles, looking at trying to like just solve all of those issues that you're having. I feel like leading up to big competition, it's going to be less about introducing um, 
completely new areas into your game. I think that's something that you need to say for outside of camp. But I feel like uh, like preparation for specific competition is going to be making sure that you really get a, a handle on different issues that you have in specific positions. So, you know, just if I do this, he does this. So, so I need to either determine why was he able to give me that response and if I can't stop it, what do I do in response to, uh, like, you know, whatever the counter may be? So, as you see it, should your game be completely watertight coming into an event or is that a bit of an ideal that perhaps is never achieved but you're always headed towards? Yeah, I, th- I feel like that's more something that's a part of the journey. So if we wanted to start talking about, okay, what do I think it takes for someone to get to a high level in jiu-jitsu? I think you'd want to start out in the journey getting disproportionately good at a, uh, like a few select set of skills and then I think over time the idea is that you should be looking to then once you get say two or three skills to say championship level the idea is then to start bringing those other skill sets up to championship level rather than trying to evenly distribute your say for example your skill points across multiple skills and trying to come up well-rounded I think that's it doesn't seem like that's been the approach to take it seems like it makes more sense to actually put all of your efforts into a few set of skills and then the idea is level up other skills in the background so I think you'd want to have those key areas watertight, but I don't think it's really possible to get all of your jiu-jitsu watertight. I mean, it's basically you could either be good at a few select set of skills or just shit at all of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of the generalist versus specialist thing, isn't it? Exactly. So I think the idea is that you would become a generalist over time, but that's really what that's more going to look like is you're actually just a specialist in a lot more areas. Okay, um, And that's, again, you're working towards an ideal there. Like if we look at the, the current landscape for jiu-jitsu, Gordon Ryan's probably a great example of that where he's a generalist now, but really it, to me it looks like he became a specialist in one particular area and then became like, you know, a specialist in another area, then a specialist in another area until eventually he's become a generalist. That's a great point. And each time, yeah, from where I sit, he's become a specialist in a new area which almost then just supersedes the last one. It's like you haven't seen him have to play leg locks because he's been doing this upper body stuff. And you're like, well, that just doesn't even enter the game anymore. So who even knows how much of it he still has? Yeah, like You see him pull it out like every now and then, but it's not the same as early on in his career. And I think this is sort of the approach to take. There's some interesting discussions as well around, uh, like say Jordan Burroughs, where you know you see this with Gordon Ryan is everyone still talks about his leg locks when exactly this he hasn't really like he's on occasion pulled them out and it's more because you know the opportunity just fell into his lap like like his opponent basically just gave it to him on a platter yeah um and then you see similar discussions about jordan burrows where everyone still talks about you know his blast double when really like his games (laughs) changed actually quite a fair bit since then like like that's more something that was sort of like pre-olympic days i believe and then now he's a he's a lot more of he's more developed in other areas of his wrestling interesting you say that because i i remember having a wrestling coach for a short period of time years ago and he was always talking about jordan burrows and his blast double and i i've a couple of times i've looked on youtube and i've been like jordan burrows blast double highlights and i actually can't find much like i know he's got it i've i have seen it yeah but it's not like he's 47 top blast doubles you know, yeah, what I was seeing was just a bunch of other wrestling that he's doing that looks incredible. Yeah, exactly. And it'd be the same right now if you went, oh, like Gordon Ryan leg lock highlight. You might be able to find some stuff from maybe six years ago. Yeah. Maybe even like four or five years ago at most. But recent matches, I think the only two leg lock finishes he has is Mateus Denise. He finished him with an inside heel hook maybe a year ago, maybe maybe a little bit more. And then ADCC 2019, he uh, outside heel hooked Pedro Mourinho. Um, outside of that, majority of his finishes have either been by rear strangle from the back or from Katagatami uh, from mount. I think there's a there's a few S mount finishes there. I think uh, Roberto Jimenez he finished him with a, an armbar from S mount. Um, he tapped Jacob Couch with just S mount. But, <laughs> but the idea is that you know you're seeing more sort of a fundamental positioning um, from Gordon, like rather than these more sort of like abstract way of finishing. On that. Can you tell me what your schedule looks like? Sure. Yeah. So, so we started talking about coffee, but you're asking about the actual training schedule. So, so outside we'll of go all tu- over. <laughs> outside of the the Tuesdays and Thursdays when I'm working at the roastery, if we talk about like what my actual training is like, I will teach during the day 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday at Grappling Education. And then I teach Wednesday evening at uh, Sydney Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Maroubra. Um, so I'll, especially now, I will generally structure those classes more so around the style of training that I want. Mm. Um, so I'll generally like teach, say, say if I do an hour and a half session, we do 45 minutes of technique um, and, and drilling. And then we'll do about 15, 16 minutes of positional training. And then we'll do uh, at least 30 minutes of rolling. So at the moment, I've, I've just switched over to us doing 10-minute rounds because that's what I need, like in terms of getting comfortable with pacing for ADCC. Like a, a standard class, we would normally do six-minute rounds because that was the uh, time limit for matches at ADCC trials. And especially when a lot of the other guys in the room as well are focused on things like ADCC trials, it, it makes sense for all of us to be doing six-minute rounds, not just me. But now I'm being a little bit more selfish with the way that I run the class, just in the sense that we're, we're doing 10-minute rounds, which I know it doesn't necessarily appeal to some of the other people in there, whether you know they're focused on competition or not. Like 10-minute rounds isn't really applicable for most of those guys. You got white belts and stuff coming to those sessions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we full uh, like so we generally get about 40 people to the class, wow. and we'll get a full spectrum of you know like a white belt through to black belt. So we will have like multiple black belts in the room, multiple white belts in the room. It's uh. I'd actually say in terms of belt level distribution, we've probably got majority of the room is about purple belt. Okay. Yeah, maybe blue belt, purple belt. Like that's probably where the bulk of it actually is. And is that the case at um, Maroubra as well, SJJA? Or is that more so grappling education? And uh, More so grappling education, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's my sessions that I actually run. And then Tuesday, Thursday evenings, I'll go and train out at Sydney West Martial Arts uh, under Luke Martins. And so that's where, you know, those are sessions where I'm – just upskilling versus you know the the sessions that i run I'm, I'm teaching as well as like and focusing on like what the other students are doing as well as trying to include some of my own training in those sessions where you're running the class but then also getting in a bit of your own training do you find it hard to jump between those two roles i used to find it difficult um, i find it a little bit easier now depending on the day I will spend more time probably sitting and watching and focusing on other people rolling, but especially now like like leading up to ADCC, I still am like trying to make sure I actually watch what these guys are doing, but it just might mean that I need to change up a little bit sort of the structure for the week. Like it might mean that, you know, I choose to also go and train somewhere either Monday or Friday evening so that way I can specifically focus on what the guys are doing during those sessions during the day. So I only roll once a day. Mm. Say, for example, uh, you know, I, I want to pay attention to what the students are doing during the class. It might mean that, say, Monday or Friday, I'll organize to go train in the evenings instead. So that way I can actually watch what the guys are do, uh, doing during the day. And then similar with, like, say, Wednesday, I teach during the day at Grappling Education. And then I teach in the evening at SJJ. I'll pick to roll at one and focus on observing at the other. Yeah, okay. Has rolling once a day always been a rule of yours? I used to roll more, but I just, uh, my body just can't keep up with it. I just, you know, 11 years of jujitsu, it's uh, catching up with me. How old are you now? Uh, 26. Right on, right on. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know, like, you, you seem to have a very kind of um, structured and I would say sort of like a moderate approach to how you go about developing your jujitsu. And I think that that's, Arguably, that's coming more to the forefront now at the elite level. However, it is not the prevailing culture of jiu-jitsu, right? Like the Pohada culture is like you get after it and you show up multiple times a day and you try to kill everyone. Yeah, so so when I was, when I was rolling twice a day, I was doing that at a period of time where I could do that consistently. If I was going to roll twice a day now, I would – like say, for example, if I just I chose to roll twice a day for a week – I don't think I'd get through the week first and foremost, but it meant like that my training the following week would suffer versus if I focus on rolling uh, once a day right now, I can maintain that year round. And so I'd, I'd have to go back and like, like check some things. But I mean, I, I think training in general, consistent frequency is probably more important than sporadic intensity. Yep. Like, I mean, you know... Y- yourself like working like fitness for so long I imagine you'll probably see similar sorts of things in terms of people looking to make strength gains or cardio gains is that it is more about frequency than it is probably about like just intensity over short periods of time absolutely absolutely I remember speaking with Jess Fraser and she said the exact same thing she said all of my injuries come from when I haven't been training regularly and I go back and I'm trying to match that same intensity and I break something I think it's it's a little bit counter to our nature though isn't it because you're on the mats, you're like, oh, fuck, 
I was sick for the last two weeks, but I'm here tonight. I'm so excited to be back at training. I want to get after it. When really at that time, your goal should be to ramp back up, get to a point of consistency, and then you've almost earned the right then to to fuck with those higher intensities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, this idea of people trying to jump in and they're, they're working with like sort of high intensity, but like sporadically, they're approaching their training with the assumption that the physical work is what's going to allow them to improve rather than staying consistent on the mental work and like say, uh, you know, diligent study outside of the training room or, or like, you know, or even in the training room, but, you know, like focusing on like what's actually being taught. Like they're assuming that the rolling is what's going to allow them to improve the most, which is why they're probably trying to tackle that with intensity versus if they focus probably a little bit more on the mental side of things like, uh, you know, note-taking, uh, studying, drilling. I think if they focused more on that, then you know, they would actually probably see greater returns in their training. I feel like you're speaking to my soul right now. <laughs> I'm that guy. I've just been the physical side of it forever. And, I, and I've known for a long time, like, man, I need to, you know, if I actually want to be better at this, it, it requires the mental side. Can you elaborate on what that looks like and say maybe, like tell us what you do, but maybe how you would recommend that to someone who's not at your level coming up, lower belt, how they could start to develop the mental side of the game? I'm going to um, go out first and uh, sort of trash a little bit uh, a common saying that's uh, used in jiu-jitsu where people just say, oh, just just show up. Just showing up is the bare fucking minimum that anyone can actually do. Like if you're like, you know, people say, oh, I like to get good, like just show up. It's like, no, 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 like, like anyone can just show up. The guys that aren't just showing up, they're not doing jiu-jitsu, so why do you care about what they're doing? If you're doing jiu-jitsu, it means you're already showing up, like, like, Showing up is the the fucking minimum, and I and I hate this expression because like that that's just kind of like saying just wake up. Yeah, exactly. Like, but it's like anyone can do that. Like, just by virtue of being in jujitsu, you you're like you're showing up anyway. You, you can't just do something that just absolutely anyone can do and expect to get a better result than these other guys. Like, like it's it's just just doesn't work like that. Um, I think you need to come into training each day with the intention of being mindful. I think for people that want to come into training and they want to start developing more like mental training for jiu-jitsu, I would start off with just taking notes on what you covered in that, like like what your coach covered in that class. Um, I don't think that you need to take in-depth notes. Like I think people, they, they start like writing longhand and they, they start to write essays to describe the techniques. I don't think you have to go that far. Like I, I, I certainly don't, write very very detailed notes in terms of what i'm working on and what i'm drilling i would take more detailed notes if there's a particular point that i want to emphasize about a particular technique that i'm working on but really this is where having a language developed or or, you know jargon developed uh for the techniques that you're using so i know like a lot of people give say john danaher criticism for his uh extreme use of japanese terms and mixing it with english which i think is fair criticism but the point is you need to have some sort of language that you're using to describe each technique that you're applying. Um, so that way you can just take notes on these things. What I would suggest is to take shorthand notes on what your coach has covered in that class. The idea then is that your coach teaches your technique. You maybe did some drilling on it. Um, and that might be, you know, if you're just showing up, that's the only time you got to see that technique. But you go home, you get a pen and paper, and you start writing down what was covered in class. You're now mentally working through for a second time those exact same techniques. I think uh, I was talking to um, a teammate about this the other day. There's even a study that shows that you will get committing something to to long-term memory. Um, When you take notes, if you use pen and paper, um, it is easier to commit it to long-term memory than if you were trying to type things down on a phone. So I think like those are other little things that you can add in as well. I always felt that was the case just anecdotally from uh, my own experience from school and things like this. So I've always preferred to, to go pen and paper. I know some people prefer typing on their notes, but I believe there's some research suggesting that, you know, actually physically writing it down allows you to commit it to memory a little bit better. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. We were discussing pens before the, uh, before the show. <laughs> and yeah, I definitely think that pen to paper is key for whether it's jujitsu techniques or it's journaling or gratitude, whatever it's like. Do it the old school way. Yeah. And so then going beyond that, so so that was a very long-winded way of me going about explaining uh, just take some notes on class. <laughs> um, but then the idea is that if you wanted to go beyond that, especially if you're not sure where to take your actual training, is 
to start trying to find match footage of the positions that your coach would have been covering in class and try and look and, and, and see how those positions play out and look at like what other high-level competitors are doing in the same situations, trying to sort of see what the different options are, how people are reacting, how like uh, they're, they're sort of counter-reacting in these different situations. Now, if you don't know how to find match footage on specific positions, then, then that's fine. You can also just go ahead and like pick a competitor you like and just, just watch a little bit of what he does, you know, watch even if it's not what your coach is showing necessarily, watching match footage of a particular competitor and watching what he does in repeat scenarios. Like we were talking about Gordon Ryan before. Um, let's say every single time Gordon Ryan plays half guard. He, do, he doesn't do this, but let's say like every time Gordon Ryan uh, plays half guard, he, he chooses to claim an underhook. You can look at, you know, okay, how is he claiming the underhook each time? When he does take an underhook, what is he generally trying to look for first as he, his first sort of major technique? What are the common reactions he's getting off of that? And how is he reacting to those reactions? And then the idea is that you can start just looking at this and even taking notes on it, or even if you don't take notes, just watching it and trying to at least observe what he's doing and trying to take it on board. And that was obviously a step beyond like just writing down what you went through in class. Have you always had this approach with your jiu-jitsu or has this come about more recently? Uh, I've, I've done this since white belt. Wow. Yeah, so, so I've wasted this, which is funny because I, I was very diligent when I was a white belt with like taking notes and trying to study jiu-jitsu and I was a terrible student. I, I like was, at school? Yeah, I was, I was a terrible student at school. Um, I, I couldn't make myself do this if I wanted to. And do you think that was just the case of you studying something that you love now versus something you've been told to do? Yeah, so I understand that some people go, oh, you know, I couldn't do that. You know, like I, I couldn't uh, do that at school because I just wasn't interested in school. But really, I, I think that's that's a sign of a lack of discipline. And I think I was significantly less disciplined back then, like as most people were when they were younger. I feel like as I've grown up, I'm a lot more disciplined now. And if I went back to school, like I wouldn't have any issues with making myself do that. At the time, I think it was, I was just very passionate about jujitsu. And so it was easy to make my, like to get myself to do that because I wasn't having to make myself. I, I wanted to go and do it. I wanted to go and learn uh, jujitsu and like, like take on as much as I could. I didn't even do it because I thought, oh, this will make me better at jujitsu. I just did it because I wanted to. Yeah, right. Did you have a mentor or a coach that sort of pushed you in that direction with it? No, actually, I did it because where I started jujitsu, there was very little focus on like competitive jiu-jitsu. So I wanted to just, um, you know, try and study like what the best guys were doing and, and try and steer my own training in that direction. Wow. Where did you start? I originally started um, at Hunter Valley Martial Arts. So, so that was a, like a karate dojo, yeah. which is why the, the jiu-jitsu wasn't so focused on like the competitive side of things, which is fine because, you know, everyone trains for different reasons. We were talking about this before, like, you know, if you're running a gym, like, like target a niche. So, you can imagine being a karate dojo, less focused on sports-specific jiu-jitsu and a little bit more focused on self-defense and, and more like, I guess, what you might call holistic jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Like, but for me personally, I was just very focused on competition jiu-jitsu. I saw it as a game. And so you wanted that sports-specific aspect of it. Absolutely. How long did you train there for? I trained there for, I believe, two years. Um, I got my blue belt and then... Around that time, I think I was starting to look at going to university. I think I'd taken I, – I think I didn't go directly to university from high school. I, I had a little bit of time off and then I was looking at doing a course to go back in – to go into university. And so just in terms of scheduling things like this, like it didn't quite line up with when they had the classes there. So I ended up changing to Best and Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and I, I ended up training there until about mid-purple belt level. Okay. And then um, I'm guessing Absolute came after that? Yeah. As I mentioned, I've, I've always been focused on competitive jiu-jitsu. And so I was looking at trying – like I was trying to compete as much as I could. It, you know, jiu-jitsu competition can be expensive. So as much as was financially viable. Yep. Um, and then when I wanted to try and take my jiu-jitsu training in a more professional direction or at least in a more serious direction – I had a chat with Luke about this saying, hey, like this is what I'm thinking about doing, like uh, like going down to Melbourne and, and training with uh, Lachlan and Craig and Liv and, and trying to take jiu-jitsu more seriously. And he was just, you know, he, he was like very, very supportive of that and said, was absolutely go for it. Like if that's what you want to do, like that is the place to go and do it. Ah, uh, so you were training with Luke prior to moving to Absolute. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ah, uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Luke. 
like, and I've never like, you know, I know a lot of the, the jiu-jitsu folk on this side of town, yep. but I've never had, I've never met him. Um, and so, but obviously his gym has become like a really iconic gym, right? There's a, a lot of like, we've got, what's that, two, more than two ADCC reps going over there? Yeah, so um, Lachlan's going over. Um, I, I guess it depends on who you count as being. Oh, so you might be mixing up Luke Besson with Luke Martin maybe. Ah, I am. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, Luke Martin in uh, Sydney West Martial Arts. Uh, this was uh, Luke Beston, uh, Beston in Newcastle. Gracie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so he was he was like, yeah, dude, but go I, and train with. Lockie. Yeah, but funnily enough, I actually did know Luke Martin back then too. Like, I, yeah. I had maybe five matches with Luke across that time period when I was training out of Newcastle. So it's one of those things where I, I knew Luke through competition, um, but then coming around full circle now, I'm like training under Luke. So, so, uh, so okay. Luke, Luke Martin, uh, yeah. So, so it's interesting, uh, like how that all sort of comes together because Luke was Luke Martin was doing a very similar thing to me at that time when I was training up in Newcastle, which was trying to study what these guys are doing at a high level and trying to replicate that at this particular time, probably 2015, 2016 time, no one was doing leg locks. Like this is when Eddie Cummings um, and Gary Tonin were leg locking everyone and no one else was trying to work out what they were doing. Um, so I remember like Luke and I, like in the local competition scene, we had multiple matches against each other and, um, at those competitions, like we're leg locking everyone else, um, <laughs> and, and then like having matches against each other. So it was, we even reminisce about that sometimes at training, where you know we we look back at that and you go, ah, oh, damn, we sucked. Like, but <laughs> everyone else sucked so much worse. Like at leg lock. So like, what what a good time period that was, where you didn't even have to be good and you could just tap people. Man, I remember when everyone used to tap to straight foot locks. Yeah, you know, I, I it's just see, like you chuck I mean. it on, put a bit of squeeze, and it came over. Like this was a time period where you didn't even have to have very effective braking mechanics. You just grab someone's foot and they just tapped out of fear. Like yeah. I, I miss those days. Yeah. Now you have, now you have to actually like seriously injure people, and even then that might not be enough. It's so true. Actually, I read the little bio on you on the ADCC website. And it said something at the end like, expect to see the people leaving the mat after finding Jeremy to be walking with a limp or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, one can hope. That's the game now, isn't it, at the higher level where it's like, like tell, tell me how that works where people don't tap and things break and often the fight continues. But tell me how, how the fuck does that actually work? And do me a favor, just turn that mic a bit more center to your head there. Yeah, good man. Yeah, um... So, so it's interesting. Like, if we talk about what my focus on in jujitsu is, it's it's purely the technique. So, on one side of things, I understand that people look at you know these serious injuries in jujitsu and they go, "Oh, that's disgusting. Why would anyone do that to their body?" But then on my side of things, I look at that and I go, "Great, I get to test out my technique. Like, and I get to take it, like, test it, take it all the way through to its limits. Like something that you don't do in training is." It's, a little bit savage as that might sound. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm glad that there's these crazy people out there that give me an opportunity to like do a deep test on my braking mechanics for an every <laughs> hook. Damn. So for you, is it really like a kind of scientific sort of thing there where, where it's like, like it's almost like an experiment? Yeah. Um, less so now because I feel like because of uh, how confident I am with my braking mechanics, I think more so it was – it was more of a test to see, oh, am I actually doing this correctly? And over the years, like you would discover certain things related to when you actually caused a break, um, what that actually meant for, I guess, like, you know, the actual joint lock itself. Um, for example, with, so, so this is starting to get a little bit gross with it, but let, let, let's, say we, let's say we talk an outside heel hook. Um, I put a disproportionate focus on trying to cause damage to the knee with an outside heel hook versus the ankle. There was a stage in my uh, competition career where I, I discovered that if you're applying an outside heel hook and you allowed the ankle to break, generally what happened was is that it actually released a tremendous amount of tension in the lock and then it would allow the person to escape. So I, I know a lot of times, you know, people will practice heel hooks safer and, and you'll think, oh, yeah, you know, if, like if it targets the ankle, that's okay too because that's just another thing that you're going to break. But I actually found that as a result of breaking the ankle, it would actually allow people to get out of the heel hook. So, and, you know, a lot of people would, are willing, like even a relatively low competition, like l l relatively low level in competition, people are willing to suffer ankle injuries. 
but not knee injuries. When you say break, are you talking about there's a bit of tearing, a bit of a couple pops? Yeah, so, so we say break, but really, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, sprains. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. like not so much breaking actual bone. That does happen sometimes, um, but more so like sprains. But we just use the term break, even though in majority of cases, you're not actually trying to break your training partner. You're trying to cause like some sort of serious sprain. Okay, it's good. Yeah, because it is funny. I think about that. We always refer to it like, like, oh man, like you, you know, and the visual, the visual connotation for people is that like, oh wow, the foot must have been like spinning around three sixty, no. but it's it's like no, nah, like some tendons got fucked up, maybe torn, yeah, exactly, sprained, but the, the joint was still kind of largely intact. It's the same way when we talk about you know, say an armbar, and we we say, oh, we we broke the guy's arm. It's like, well, the bones were fine, like a break. To my understanding, a break refers to specifically uh, actual bone. Yeah. Versus what we're doing is we're we're causing a sprain in the elbow, like we're we're tearing at uh, ligaments uh, in the elbow there. So so that's what you would class as a sprain. And I also find it funny as well when um, I, I've spoken to people about like different injuries, and I go, oh, they go, oh no, it's it's just like I didn't tear; it's just a sprain, and it's like they're the same thing. <laughs> like like yeah, people. I think people assume that a sprain means that. There wasn't, there wasn't an injury there. There wasn't actually any tearing of ligaments. Yeah, yeah. Sprain um, is like a – kind of seems light. Yeah, but you could, you know, like a, a complete rupture. I, I I don't know if a complete rupture would be still classified as a sprain, but a sprain is very very much so like a, a tearing of ligament. A sprain um, is fucking horrible. Like to give – to give context to people listening, like it's often – like I've sprained my ankle really badly back in my soccer days and re-sprained it through jiu-jitsu many times. But a sprain in the ankle is worse than a break because when you have a break, say I snap tendons in my ankle or perhaps, I don't know, I break a bone in my lower leg as a result of that same impact. I get put into a cast and I immobilize it for a period of time and things heal and then after six weeks I can go back to you know my, my rehab, whatever – but when you sprain something, you can still function with it. And usually it's a sprain. Like you can still walk around on your shitty ankle. Yep. And that's the problem is usually what happens is you just end up having this shitty ankle for the rest of your life. Yep. And I, I mean we see that in jits, right, people with the bad knee or the bad shoulder, you know, and it's because the thing was never fixed properly. So yep. sprains are real motherfuckers. Yeah. But in any case, back to the intention being oh. you want to see – how you can most efficiently apply the technique yeah, to like, target the most amount of damage. Yeah, well, not, not even just specifically in that case. Um, like when I, when I think about competition in general, to me, I look at it as a way of uh, testing my skills. And so when you have, uh, I won't name a particular ethnicity, but like, you know, certain people that are a little bit crazy and willing to let people break their legs, it seems to be one particular ethnicity uh, allows us to do that. <laughs> It's just an extension of that idea that competition is a, a way for me to test what I'm working on in the training room um, at the highest possible level that I can and, you know, with the greatest amount of resistance possible. Um, and, and really for me, that is what competition is about. It's the same thing with coming up to ADCC. I would like taking a gold medal is something that I am aiming to do, but that's never really been the overall goal of what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get matches against the toughest and best opponents possible thinking about that almost under three weeks out from the big show do you have a process for managing just the nerves that come about do you experience the nerves i just i, I don't get nervous you don't get nervous no, I feel good amazing what about when it's the morning of the event you feel any nerves the closest i get to nerves is probably when I'm thinking about matches and thinking about how they'll play out, it might be say like I'm in the hotel room and I'm, you know, doing some study and then I start visualizing how particular sequences are going to play out. Like I might be say, for example, the night before studying a particular opponent um, and, and looking at match footage of them and then looking at particular situations that they might come up. Like I might watch a, you know, a particular match of their opponent, they're doing something from a certain position. Maybe it's like one of their A-game techniques or something like this. And, and I'm looking at that and then I, I sort of mentally go off in a tangent thinking about, okay, if I'm in that situation, like what am I doing? Um, if they get there, it means something goes wrong. What am I looking to do to salvage this? Starting to visualize how those situations are going to play out. I wouldn't say I get nervous then, but like I, I've had a few times where I'm doing that and I've had not like a big adrenaline dump, but I could, I can feel like my heart 
like race a little bit, but I think that's more to do with me really visualizing the situations and visualizing how that's actually going to feel when I'm competing um, versus feeling actually nervous. Like it, it doesn't make me feel nervous doing that. It just, if anything, when I'm doing that, it, it just feels real, if anything. Yeah. Has it always been that way through your competitive career or did you experience more nerves in the earlier days? Um, yeah, so early on, first few years of competition, I would get adrenaline dumps so badly that like I just never knew what actually happened in the match. Like it was proper, like uh, like people talk about like tunnel vision. Like I, I felt like you know, my vision actually darkened and like started to close over and I could barely see when I competed and and I just had no idea what was going on and just pure instinct. And I don't know what happened to break me of that, but just now it's the complete opposite. I feel very clear-headed when I compete. I find that I can think just fine. You know, if you watch any of my recent matches where Luke's cornering me, like I, like a you know, he'll call things out to me and I'll just give him a nod like like to let him know that uh, I've taken on board what he said and I'm looking to implement what he said. So I just feel, yeah, I, there, there was just a complete 180 at one stage in my jiu-jitsu journey um, and, yeah, I feel calm, cool and collective when I compete now. Man, that's the dream right there. Yeah, I wish I had a better understanding of what happened there but, again, you know, psychology is... Did you it do some mushrooms or something? No, it? no. Is that no, black no. rifle coffee or some shit? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just one of those things where psychology, even when they, they you know, do major studies on any particular topic, the, the, the results are inconclusive, let alone you know, in sort of like one, a one-off instance, like you know, trying to, to form an opinion on something psychological with uh, anecdotal evidence. Like that's, that's borderline impossible then. If you look back at your like upbringing and, you know, like your, your, your childhood, whatever, teenage years, do you see anything there that, that helped to shape your, your sort of desire to be competitive with jiu-jitsu? Just where I'm thinking with that is like even how you mentioned I saw jiu-jitsu and I wanted to compete in it yeah. and from a white belt I started taking, you know, notes and, and, and I just think that that's a very exceptional approach. Was there anything in your earlier years that perhaps shaped you in that uh, way? So – I would say that myself and the rest of my family are all very similar in that regard. If you look at what myself and my family members all do, we're all very specialized, very competitive people. So so my dad, he was in the military. He was a major in the infantry and um, he's actually an arms dealer now. Really? <laughs> but like, like as in like he does work with, you know, like the government, like in, in different aspects. In terms okay, of, so he's like, not like Nicolas Cage, Lord of War. The legal version of that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So while my mum, she is uh, a doctor of uh, nutrition and dietetics. My brother is a real estate agent. Currently, he's only just started doing that, but he's always been a salesman and he's he's someone that could sell snow to Eskimos. Uh, And so all three of my family members are highly competitive, highly focused and motivated people. Wow. And they're all very obsessed people. So very similar to me, like whatever they choose to put their efforts towards, they go in 100%. So that's always been a quality of yours. Absolutely. Yeah. So so this is just, I think, something like, you know, so I attribute, like, because my brother is just like that, I guess I would attribute this to my two parents, just uh, just sort of the upbringing we had. Not that they ever, you know, really made us perform in that way, but just... They're, in my mind, uh, both my parents are very admirable people. Like when I look at them, I'm like very proud of who my parents are. And I I think just growing up, like you see that and you aspire to be like that. And like you you have like, like I feel very lucky to have like such positive role models in my life uh, with them in so many aspects. Like they're not people that I look at and I can really see everyone has flaws, but like they're not people with major character flaws like always had a great relationship with each other. They have great relationship with other people. The way that their values align, I think have just had such a positive impact on me as I was growing up and still do to this day. And so I think that's where a lot of this comes from. So on the jujitsu lifestyle side of things, talk to me about injury management at your level of the game. Oh, could be, could be much better. Okay. Yep. Elaborate. So the, the issue I have is that this is where I need to do a better job of managing injuries. I do, I'm much better with it now than I was in the past. Um, 
because I, you know, just overall, I think just as I've grown up, I've become a more disciplined person and I can make myself do these things. I do jujitsu. Like, like, and so to me, I'm like, okay, like, cool. Like I want to do more jujitsu when I have the, the physical energy to do it. Um, like, like all my physical energy will go into jujitsu. But now I, I do a better job, I think, of actually managing and rehabbing different types of injuries uh, that I have or, or working around certain types of injuries. Like uh, ADCC trials uh, in the finals, uh, my teammate Dave put me in an outside heel hook and I, I uh, took some uh, a, a little bit of damage there. And so one of the things after trials that I had to do was uh, do a, uh, some rehab just to strengthen uh, the muscles around my knee, so that way it was going to be a lot more stable and also just help promote healing there. Um, was there a particular avenue you wanted to go down with? Like, so say something like that, that's going to happen in competition, but um, it's always been my feeling like you tend to get, injuries tend to come about most through training. Yeah. And it's, all, it's usually something unpredictable, right? Yeah. Like that's the nature of it. When I look at someone like you at that level of the game, and, you know, I've been watching like some of your recent training clips from um, Sydney West, awesome, like fucking love watching the scraps, you know, and it's the same way that say I injured my knee when I was training with Adam, it was like two guys really experienced with this, we're just going really hard on each other this one particular night and my knee, you know, whatever, took the damage. Um, when I look at you and I'm thinking you, you're prepping for a comp, you're obviously training at an intensity that's quite high quite frequently how do you manage – is there something that you consciously do to maybe mitigate injuries or is it just like a, hey, they're going to happen and I just – I try to train smart and – Sure. So, so there's two ways to go about it, yes. I'd say two major ways you can go about it. So you could completely avoid injuries, which I think if you want to take your training to a certain level of intensity is not possible to do entirely um, or you can manage injuries. So – the approach we take is a combination of two. You identify what um, techniques or what movements are going to cause the worst types of injuries that are going to be impossible to work around. And then you, and so you remove those sorts of techniques from the training room. So let's say uh, Basami, um, you know, the, the leg scissor. Exactly. Yeah. Or um, like Tani Otoshi, which is a, a way of uh, throwing someone backwards. And, you know, th- this leads to like people sitting on the sides of their training partner's knees. This is um, something I've spoken with like Keller about as well. Like even in judo, he, he said like that, that that sort of throw causes probably the greatest number of injuries. He said, obviously, when you're talking high level judoka, um, less the case, but I'm not a high level judoka. Like I like, so, so it makes sense then for me to eliminate that technique from my training in a day to day basis. Um, flying techniques, like just flying arm bars, jumping close guard, things like this. So so anything that is going to cause serious catastrophic injury and is something that like, like it just means that we just have to remove this from training. Like it's the but only it, way. Isn't that then, doesn't that only work for predictable potential injury? So say like a technique like that. For sure. What In my experience, it's usually some scramble or they go there, you go, fuck, what happened? Oh man, thing got caught. Like it's usually an unpredictable moment. Yeah, oh for sure. So these are the movements that probably cause the greatest catastrophic injury. So, you know, they're going to lead to a whole shin snapping, blowing one or multiple ligaments completely in your knee. When you start eliminating those, then you're starting to be left with the sorts of injuries that aren't going to be as devastating, like ones where – we're talking at most weeks in recovery, not months. So then that's when you start looking at, okay, with what's left now, you're starting to do with injury management and, you know, actually like like doing rehab and things like this versus catastrophic injuries where we're talking surgery. Right. You know, when, you, when you're getting to a stage where like you're getting injured with things that are going to require surgery to cover from, there's just no working around that. Yeah. And so, I mean, even on that, do you find what I've observed for a lot of folks in jiu-jitsu is that, you get those small niggling injuries that aren't catastrophic, but it's they go unaddressed or they go or they get aggravated, and yeah. over time it can become something that does require, you know, medical intervention. How do you manage it on that front? Like, say with with your knee, I'm guessing, is there some lingering thing there that you're kind of working around? Over the years, worked with both JT on specific things related to this. Actually, one of the things I need to to speak to JT about that we actually spoke about 
quite a long time ago but was has mentally been on the back burner for me is probably like anything shoulder related like shoulder mobility and things like this but yeah so i've, I've uh, even down in melbourne uh having worked with jt to help manage certain injuries as well as um a good friend of mine tim travail um uh, yep. who i think you should have tim on the podcast sometime if it's possible he's like, a physio right and he's trained at absolute correct tim is one of like the highest functioning individuals that i know he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu he might only train twice a week but he'll rock up and then just beat the living daylights out of whoever he trains with wow okay um so he's a physiotherapist as well as running his own online uh, physiotherapy business. So so he works in a practice as well as he does online work, as well as he's doing his PhD, as well as he's lecturing at the university. <laughs> like, as well as he has a baby on top of all this. Like, like, so, like, like he's got a lot going on and he's high performing in all of these things. Right on. So, so, so he's, he's a deeply impressive individual. Yeah, that'd be a cool chat. Yeah. So, so I definitely think you should have Tim on. Um, he's doing a lot of work lately as well. Um, um, if you follow him on social media, covering a lot of topics uh, specific to jujitsu, both just uh, in like like exercise in a broader sense, as well as like physiotherapy and, and injury management relating to jujitsu specifically. Um, looking at like data sets related to jujitsu and, and like trying to break down and show different studies on things related to jujitsu. So, for example, jiu-jitsu has a disproportionate number of uh, lateral, I think, like lateral collateral um, ligament injuries, so, so like LCL injuries um, compared to other types of sports. Like, say, for example, if you look at uh, rugby, soccer, things like this, the sorts of knee injuries that come up in those sports are going to be more MCL and ACL injuries, while jiu-jitsu, for whatever reason, just has a disproportionate number of LCL injuries mm-hmm. um, compared to these other, other sports. And so he, you know, will take a deep dive into that sort of topic and like like talk about, you know, okay, so this is the data. This might be why this is happening, but it's just like interesting nonetheless. Yeah, it's cool. I have seen some of his stuff and it does look good. I usually stay pretty surface level on the stuff that goes deep science, you know, because in a part it's like, oh, fuck, this is the game we play. Yeah, you know, oh, for sure. Like I, I don't think there's anything we can do about – like there's, there's a lot that we can do about that uh, in regards to remedying it. But I think it's like it, it's interesting to to know about. It's just, yeah. With jiu-jitsu generally, what would be the biggest struggle or hurdle that you face? Probably right now. And this probably seemed a little less evident with ADCC getting matches against opponents, uh, like a sort of interesting opponents. So, so at the moment, um, you know, living in Australia, uh, we're a much smaller scene compared to say what's going on in the US, what's going on in Brazil, like like places like this. So, probably the hard part is just getting those matches at the level, uh, like like these high level matches that I want. Um, you're either having to rely on competitors having to come from overseas, like, and this is not like this is this is a very expensive thing to do, or coming from Australia and flying overseas to have these matches. And again, that's an expensive thing to do. So that's probably the biggest hurdle for me is getting these matchups that I really want to have, um, and so just trying to to sort of reconcile that and work out what the the best approach is to take to get these matches. Now, luckily for me, like ADCC. Um, they cover travel and things like this. So like it's not a hurdle I have to worry about, but say for example, after ADCC um, I'm intending to stay in the U S until about mid December. So I'm, I'm hoping to try and uh, get some matchups while I'm over there to, to sort of solve this issue. And are you going to go, I'm guessing you're going to go drop like train, pick a gym there and train for a while. Yeah. So the intention is to train at B team while I'm there. I was thinking that'd be the one you obviously have a relationship with Craig. You guys trained at absolute together. Yeah, yeah, Craig and I are good friends. So, so like, and he's been uh, really helpful in me just trying to work out the best approach to take to actually, like, you know, stay in Austin, um, get around, and and things like this. Would you see yourself moving to to the states or to somewhere where you could be more immersed in? Yeah, so so visa wise, that's a pretty big hurdle. Um, you know, uh, like I finished high school, but really probably the easiest way to live in the U.S. is if you had, um, you know, just some sort of bachelor's um, or equivalent work experience um, in a particular like like field. Um, I think I've 
competed at a sufficiently high enough level in jiu-jitsu that there are certain visas available to me. So that's probably like the biggest hurdle there to being able to get over to the US. I'd like to do that. Um, I also have a lot keeping me here in Australia. So it's one of those things where, where you know, there's a lot to weigh up there and a lot to consider. In terms of you as a coach and what you impart on the people that, you, you know, you've obviously been through a lot of the stuff in this chat about taking notes and, and we spoke about the specialization piece and, you know, mar- like trying to master a couple of things and that whole thing. When you're looking at these days, because jiu-jitsu has evolved a lot and we kind of acknowledge this off air that it's come a long way in a short space of time. When you look at people who are newer to the game, whites and blue belts, students that are under you, what is probably the key pieces of advice or even just one piece of advice that you find yourself giving to this population? So this has probably come up more and more, not just for the beginners, but also for the higher belts as well that are looking to pursue jiu-jitsu professionally. Um, So, you know, it's, I think, easy to look at, say, for example, guys like Lachlan and Craig who have gotten to a very high level of the sport and you like you want to go and do that um, and, and try and push yourself to get to that level. And like, you know, people can aspire to do that whether they're white belt or black belt, like you can see what these guys are doing. Um, But it takes a lot of work to get to that sort of level. And I think first and foremost, you need to enjoy it. So, so it's, I think it's easy to say for example, like like we see this a lot of the times, um, you know, you would see this as a gym owner, a gym owner is, you know, the guy that wants to come in and he's like, I want to be in the UFC. He's like, I want to be like a, a UFC champion. But it takes so much to get to that level. So it's easy to sort of say that's what you want to do without recognizing the level of work it takes to get to that point. When really at the end of the day, like we're all doing this because we enjoy it. Um, so I think first and foremost, we, like regardless of what your aspirations are, you should enjoy it um, and do it because you have fun. Like the, the, the reason that I'm going to ADCC is not because I thought I want to go to ADCC one day my goal in jiu-jitsu, I, what I find enjoyable is the technique and trying to get my technique as good as possible um, like or like get it to the highest level I possibly can. I find that aspect enjoyable and that's, what it, that's what's allowed me to get to ADCC. Um, but if I did not find that fun or I didn't find pushing myself to get to that level fun, then I just wouldn't do it. Like, like I just happen to find that sort of thing uh, in, enjoyable. Are there times, maybe certain training sessions, you're driving to the gym where you don't feel like like there are the micro elements of the process where you're like, fuck, I'm not feeling it today. Yeah. But, but are you saying that from like when you zoom out and you look at it, you're like, I enjoy what I do. And for the most part, this is a, an enjoyable experience. Sure. So, so earlier on in jiu-jitsu, I think there was times where especially like, you know, when I was a lot younger, you know, especially like when I'm talking like like 17 or 18 where probably a little bit more emotionally volatile people um, where, you know, I'd be like about to go to training and think, oh, like I don't want to go to training. Like for whatever reason, whether it's like some amount of anxiety or anything like this. And I realized that, well, most of the time when I don't want to go, if I've made myself go, I actually end up really enjoying myself. So I might as well make myself go initially because I know that I'm I'm going to be better for it. There has been, there's there's definitely been times in my life where where I've I've made myself go to training when I wasn't feeling like it and I actually did regret it. Like I just went no, I just I just didn't enjoy myself. But I know that like I know in majority of the cases that I I'm going to enjoy it regardless. Even if I just simply go oh like I'm I'm sore today like you know, I, I trained hard yesterday. Like I really don't want to go today. If I make myself go, I, I, I enjoy it pretty much every single time. Where can people follow you and where can they follow like your, your ADCC journey? Uh, best place to, to follow me is on Instagram at Jeremy Paul Skinner. I used to be on Facebook, but I, I'm sort of off Facebook now. Uh, I just kept the messenger aspect. So Instagram is the best place to follow me. That's where I'm trying to keep like just posting updates about my training and things like this and, and my plans for uh, the US. Sick. Um, there will be a link to your Instagram account in the show notes. I'll put that there for sure. Um, do you know who you're up against first? So I think the, the they don't release the brackets until the day before. 
Um, I think the current guest is Kennedy Mycel, um, Cabrinha's son. Just he's the former silver medalist from the 66 uh, kilogram division. The, the other, otherwise, the other two opponents I might get would either be Gary Tonin, who was a, a 77 kilo bronze medalist, or AJ Agazam, who was the silver medalist from the 2017 ADCC. Otherwise, there's no other medalist in the division, so it would probably be Kennedy. But uh, no slouches there. Yeah, like I, I honestly like any of those guys I want to match against. Amazing. And tell tell me this last question: you you're a leg lock guy. Are you trying to bring something new to the event? Like, are you like, nah, people are going to see a new JPS? Or are you like, no, I'm playing my game? I mean, if these guys are good enough to deal with my leg lock game, then I get to finally show off some of the other aspects of my jiu-jitsu that I've been working on for a few years. So so it's really up to them. I like that. The leg lock's like the gatekeeper. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, awesome. I'm so excited for you. The fact that you don't get nervous, even when I was asking you that question, I was getting nervous thinking about if I was in your shoes, I think it's really exceptional, you know, as a, as a fan and, you know, we, I've known you for a little bit. We've, we've shared the mats once at over at Alliance. I'm, uh, I'm super pumped to, to, to see you, just for you to go. And then obviously if you can get some victories there, that's going to be amazing. So um, best of luck. And, you know, for those listening, go follow Jeremy. We see what he's doing. It's really cool. He's representing Australia. Um, there's a few of us coming from Oz. Uh, yeah, man, all the best. Awesome. Thank you, Joey. Pleasure. Guys, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Check the show notes. Follow Jeremy's piece. If you need help with your training, you know where we're at. Bulletproof for BJJ.com. Find us on Instagram, YouTube, all of that. Thank you. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.